Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk about business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go beyond the numbers to find out. Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers Real Estate Edition with Howard and Rob. We talk about real estate industry trends, emerging issues, lots of news. We are where real estate happens. I'm Rob Nowak, and as always, I'm joined by my partner, Howard Altshuler, partner in charge of real estate services for Weaver. I want to point out that we're recording this episode on September 11th. And on 9-11, I think no matter who you are as an American, if you're old enough to remember the events of the day today, you have a story to tell. So with that in mind, Howard, tell me, what do you remember about that day and and what does today mean for you? For me, it's the first responders. Um, All of the sacrifices that they put together, acting totally selflessly to do so, um, they gave their time, they gave their energy, a lot of them gave their lives to help out their fellow New Yorkers, their fellow Washingtonians, fellow people, fellow Americans. You know, you hear the thing, we're trained to run towards the issue rather than away from it. And that's what they did. While many people were running away from the destruction in um, downtown New York and the Pentagon, they were running towards it and um, did what they were trained to do. And without even a second thought, they are the real heroes of 9-11. And that's what I always think about when, um, when I think about today. Over the holidays last year, I was in Manhattan with my family and we took the kids to see the World Trade Center. As we looked at the former site of the Twin Towers, I realized that I turned around and right there before you is a symbol of American resiliency and resolve, and that's the Freedom Tower. I was struck by the fact that on that day, on September 11, 2001, we were truly one nation, one nation, and everyone came together to respond and to heal, but almost immediately we thought about rebuilding. There was no us in them that day. We certainly grieved as a nation. We grieved our losses, but our focus was almost immediately, what does it take to rebuild? And the real estate industry recognized, and it recognizes today, its responsibility to lead the way in times of uncertainty. It led the way then, and I believe it'll lead the way as we emerge from what are some very uncertain times today, whether it's the pandemic or any other issues that we face. I think you're right. I've been to the World Trade Center Memorial as well, and it is quite a quite a stirring sight. And you know, as you look at the the skyscrapers around and everything that's been rebuilt, you realize the experts were saying 9/11 was you know spelled death to the big city, spelled death to the skyscrapers, and so not the case. And you know, when you start talking about the pandemic and everything that's going on, you're hearing some of the same things, which again I disagree with, but you're also hearing about death of retail. Um, Mind you, we've been hearing about death of retail for quite some time, but it seems like this is perhaps, um, you know, accelerating that. Um, But again, I'm not so sure. I think there's going to be opportunities for people to do things differently. And one of those areas is what we've been hearing a lot about in the past, recent past, I should say, which is the adaptive reuse. So, you know, let's start with that. I mean, Rob, what what have you been hearing about from the adaptive reuse of retail recently? Well, I think we're probably um, looking at an intersection of 
traditional brick and mortar retail locations and e-commerce. Um, I, I've certainly heard the same thing that, that retail is dead. I, I think retail might be taking on a different form. One of the things that's you know, out in the press is there are traditional real estate entities. So take Simon as an example, um, traditional real estate entity that is, is looking to perhaps purchase the assets or purchase the operations of traditional brick and mortar retailers like JCPenney. And I have to ask myself, you know, what drives that? What motivates it? Are they looking to pick up what was otherwise a strong brand and try to revive it because they see a value play there? Or are they looking to make a value play on the assets that are affiliated with that brand? You know, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I'm not sure if everybody out there listening knows this, but in a lot of cases, when you're dealing with a shopping mall, um, the anchor stores themselves um, are, or I should say the, the real estate themselves are usually owned by the anchors as opposed to owned by the malls. So if you think about a mall, everything in between all the anchors usually is owned by the mall, um, the anchors stores owned by themselves. So you're right, this could be with respect to, I think it was Simon and Brookfield trying to um, by JCPenney, maybe they're going after the real estate and not just the, um, you know, the operations itself. I want to contrast that with the transaction that was announced a few weeks ago, I think, with, um, you know, Simon and Authentic Brands looking to buy, you know, Brooks Brothers and looking to buy Lucky Brand. You know, those are infill store sites. And as a result, that's real estate that's owned by the mall already. So I see that maybe as more of a defensive move by Simon um, in order to shore up the operations, keep the t keep the tenancy in the mall strong, um, and not fall into any issues with um, um, invoking any of the co-tenancy clauses. You think there's some self-preservation involved in that? It, it, you said it's a defensive play. I'll say it's just it's self-preservation in in order to keep the entire mall intact and to record in order to keep all the tenancy intact. That, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you definitely don't want the dominoes to start falling. Um, you know, you, you lose a lucky brand, you lose a Brooks Brothers, you lose a Forever 21, for example, and it starts, starts giving people a reason not to go to the mall. Um, bigger issue, obviously, you know, we've been through Sears. Um, now we're dealing with pennies. Um, even more of an issue for people not to go to the mall. And, you know, once those dominoes start falling, it's really hard to get them to stop. So whatever you know, the mall owners and operators can do to um, kind of shore that up, maybe remove that domino that keeps the rest of them from going um, somehow or some way will uh, will work to their favor. Well, so let's take, you know, whether it's Sears or Pennies as an example, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use Sears for a moment. When you look at, at an anchor tenant like Sears and products that they would offer, you know, it's not often that you can buy lawnmowers, tires, and clothes in the same shop. Uh, where uh, outside of a Costco, where else can you do that? <laughs> right. And one of the places I think is, you know, uh, I'm typing here on my imaginary keyboard, you know, you can do that online. Uh, what sort of a, a play is there with, you know, online retailers or retailers that are predominantly online to uh, transform those operations into traditional brick and mortar or take those operations to brick and mortar? You know, it's, that's a good question. I mean, when I think about who is um, predominantly online where you can buy anything from clothes to lawnmowers to charcoal for your grill to makeup, um, I think about Amazon. I walked, uh, you right, I walked you right into it. Oh, absolutely. Thank <laughs> you for that. Um, you know, the, the, the million pound gorilla in the room, I should right. say. And, 
you know, and, and that's quite a possibility. You know, the rumors are, or the discussion is that Amazon was talking um, about JCPenney. Uh, again, the question becomes a matter of, you know, what does Amazon want? Does Amazon want the real estate or does Amazon want the location? Um, I believe that historically they don't buy real estate. They tend to rent um, worth a lot of their distribution centers, but their distribution centers are currently placed in um, industrial parks with a lot of other distribution centers. Um, they need to be closer to the consumers. I mean, last mile logistics is the biggest challenge that every online retailer has. Um, Amazon has a little bit of an advantage also in that they've started with their four-star stores. Um, they own Whole Foods. They're launching a grocery concept. Um, so you never know. They may be looking at this as a purely a um, distribution center play, or they may be looking at it as potentially a retail play, or maybe a combination of the two. I think there's a lot of factors to think about, especially from the distribution, that maybe a hybrid approach could help. You know, I, I think about what distribution centers would look like in the middle of what is predominantly, you know, traditional residential community. If I think of a mall and so let's just say for the sake of argument, uh, Amazon moves into a former Sears, a former Penny or Lord and Taylor, any, any one of the anchor type tenants. Um, typically those malls are going to be located predominantly within residential communities. They're going to be surrounded by single family and multifamily homes. Um, I, I wonder what, I wonder how the community um, perceives now, hey, I, I'm no longer located in, uh, uh, I no longer am a button to a mall. Now I'm a button to a, a truck center and a distribution facility. Do you, do you, do we get, uh, you know, residents who are putting pressure on the city not to, um, you know, allow those types of deals, not to allow those zoning changes? Do you have municipalities that say, well, you know, now I'm trading tax revenue in a retail context for what? you know, perhaps a few more jobs. And I'm just asking rhetorical questions. I think those are some of the, some of the issues that still need to be vetted out if, you know, an, an Amazon is going to go in that direction. I'm sure they want it, even if they want to do it, does the community want it? Right. Well, I mean, NIMBYism is its best in this case. I mean, you know, I, I live in a community where people get mad when the next available plot of land gets um, subdivided to something less than two acres. I can't imagine right. if, you know, out here, if someone was to put, turn a shopping center into something more industrial. But, you know, the thing with, with NIMBYism and the thing with the communities is it's, it's a battle. And, but at the same time, it's a battle that can be won if it's done right. Um, where I keep reading and hearing about companies that are successful with developments that get a lot of um, NIMBYism um, pushback is communication and listening. Uh, a matter of letting the residents around know what the plans are, letting them know you know, how they plan to mitigate any negative issues or negative perceptions coming from this, but also listening to what the residents have to say, trying to address their concerns. So I think about, you know, take a JCPenney off of a mall that happens to be located near a residential neighborhood. Um, yeah, some of the issues there would be, um, you know, the, the be a lot of trucks, there would be a lot of workers who are um, over there, um, you know, parking in the parking lot, doing their jobs, and then either going to the mall for lunch or going around for lunch. So potentially even more increased traffic at specific times, um, you know, shift changes and things like that. And perhaps there's a way to work around it. Does, you know, especially thinking about the trucks, um, is it a matter of creating some type of a sound wall or a dedicated entry and exit um, for the trucks to go 
um, that doesn't impact the rest of the traffic. Or perhaps, I know this gets really pricey, but some way of doing an underground tunnel to get from the store all the way to the nearest highway um, so that the residents don't get impacted. You know, one thing I got to hand it to for real estate developers and redevelopers is their creativity is always fantastic. And so I think the creativity could really work to their advantage. But again, it's a matter of communicating with the residents, listening to what their concerns are, um, and then being creative to to help address those. With respect to some of those issues, though, what and, and improvements that are going to be required, what comes to mind is you've you've made some changes to force that adaptive reuse, but have you made so many changes that now it can never be adapted and reused again? Once you've put in sound walls, um, you know, change the directions of roads, tunnels. I agree; those are all steps that a developer at a municipality can take to mitigate complaints from general residents in the community. But now you go too far and you've literally locked yourself into having an industrial site in the middle of a residential community and you'll never be able to go back to a mall. Maybe you don't want to go back to the mall, but you know, that's just one thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, that's a really good point. I mean, part of it is also a matter of how much of the mall do you turn into an industrial site? And also part of it also happens to do to deal with um, what was the state of the mall to begin with. If you have a relatively healthy mall that just happened to lose one anchor, um, perhaps it's a matter of kind of segregating that part of the mall. Usually it's on an end, so that's helpful. And making that the industrial, and, and we say industrial, but we're meaning more warehouse type industrial, not you know smokestacks and factories here. Yeah. Um, but you make that maybe more that industrial and you keep the rest of the mall the way it has been and hope that it can you know attract enough um, foot traffic and tenants to to continue on. Um, you definitely have, if you have a, a an Amazon distribution center with 500 people working there and maybe a thousand people running in and out every day, if not more, you have almost a captive audience for them all if you can um, market to, the, to that group of people as well. Um, so there's definitely potential there. Um, on the other hand, if you have a mall that's dead, completely dead, um, why not? Um, you know, I'll, I'll use the football uh, analogy about bend and don't break. Um, people are going to bend a lot, um, basically in terms of, um, you know, what they're willing to, to live with as long as they think that there's an advantage to doing that. But keeping in mind that if your choice is either a completely empty mall or, you know, a distribution hub, it's very possible that the distribution hub is going to win. And yeah. generally, a lot of that might be more just economically driven because, you know, mind you, it may not be generating as much tax revenue as a fully functioning mall, um, may not have as many jobs as a fully functioning mall. Um, it's still going to be a lot better than a completely empty mall. So um, I think there's a, a matter of, you know, at what point does that level of feasibility um, fall in based on the current environment? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think as soon as you see a property that's boarded up, uh, that's graffitied over, that becomes a blight in your town, um, you start to realize that a use is better than no use, especially as it would relate to uh, existing property values. You know, I would I would rather own a retail strip center uh, that's directly across the street from a logistics hub than is across the street from a dead mall because I know at least there's something going in and out of the logistics hubs. There's nothing going in and out of a dead mall. Absolutely, and you know that dovetails really nice with another thing to think about here is we're talking about a mall, 
Um, but let's also not forget about another part of retail that could be potentially adaptively reused for distribution and maybe better suited for that. And that's your big box store. Um, you know, there's a lot of big box stores out there that are vacant. Um, a lot of companies have, um, you know, tried and not done well um, or gone out of business completely and potential opportunities there. The big box stores also, there's more of them than malls. They generally tend to be more spread out and potentially more closer to the ultimate consumers. Um, and as a result, might be better locations for some adaptive reuse. Their size is pretty good, especially if you're trying to deal with a, um, you know, a last mile delivery um, mm-hmm. type situation. And in a lot of cases, if it's in a standalone pad site, um, a lot of the concerns that you have regarding um, potentially zoning, regarding other traffic, um, maybe, maybe not with the residents, but a lot of those might go away because of the fact that you're not dealing with such a big property and trying to um, maybe try and make something a mixed use. You take away the the issues with inline tenants as well. You know, you don't have many masters to serve. You only have one master to serve at that point. Right. Absolutely. So, you know, Rob, you made an interesting point about the um, um, improvements. Um, you know, we're here at Weaver and we're an accounting firm. And so let's, let's talk accounting for a second. Um, I know there's got to be some tax issues that need to be dealt with or thought about if you're a landlord or maybe a tenant, uh, what are some things to to think about? Do you really want to kick the door open and, and ask me to talk about tax? Are you sure you want to do that? <laughs> you know, I'll 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 um let my eyes glaze over for a minute or two, but go for it. So don't say I didn't warn you. Two things come to mind: qualified improvement property, also known as QIP, and the lost carryback rules. Qualified improvement property are improvements made to the interior portion of non-residential buildings, non-residential buildings, after the date the buildings were placed in service, and that's going to include existing malls and retail properties. QIP does not include improvements made to enlarge the building for any elevators or escalator improvements or with respect to the internal structural framework of a building. The CARES Act that was passed at the end of March 2020 provides that QIP is 15-year property eligible for 100% bonus depreciation. Let that sink in for a moment. It's huge for the real estate industry. You make non-structural improvements to the interior of a building. You can expense those improvements the year they're placed in service. Moreover, the CARES Act made that classification retroactive to January 1st, 2018. So there are not only go-forward tax benefits, but perhaps opportunities to amend prior year returns and harvest losses. Huge victory for the real estate industry. Number two, the CARES Act liberalized the loss carry forward and carry back rules for certain years, which are just going to magnify the benefits of the change in QIP. There's a lot here to unpack, and I would recommend anyone who has more questions or wants to, to think through a specific situation should just reach out to us to learn more about their specific situation and how this impacts their operations. Now aren't you so, sorry you now aren't you sorry you kicked the door open? Very much so, but let me see if I can boil this down for our other non-tax accountants um, on the call. Okay. So in essence what you're saying is if there's anything that needs to be done inside the building that's not necessarily trying to make it bigger, um, including even reinforcing floors, um, if you're going to start stacking things three stories high, um, that now becomes eligible for bonus depreciation which I think we mentioned is can basically take all of it at once. Um, so in essence, almost the same as just expensing it um, from, from just a pure accounting standpoint. And, um, and then from the um, 
from the the tax the carry forwards carry backs there's an opportunity to basically um, go in today and get some some tax care, carry tax loss carry backs that you wouldn't have been able to get otherwise yeah and if if anyone had sustained losses in the current year if anyone had placed qualified what is otherwise qualified improvement property in place in 2018 19 and has not had discussions with their CPA they absolutely should be um, because because these rules impact our industry probably more than any other. Yeah, and what you're telling me also is is this applies to any non-residential. So it seems like this isn't just a mall renovation issue. This is any type of company that has their own real estate that wants to make some improvements could take advantage of these provisions um, for 2020 and and do something there. Non-residential, non-structural is the key as right. you, as you right. as you related it to perhaps reinforcing floors. We have to look at whether or not that changes the overall structural integrity of the building or merely is constructing, let's say, another mezzanine floor that is going to be significantly more reinforced than the existing floor. Um, we, we might have some research to do, but the initial thought is that you probably have a good position because you're not changing the overall structural integrity of the building. It's a structure that resides within the building. We're not changing the shell. So even though I like to boil things down to simple and black and white, it never really is, especially no, when we're keep, talking I'll about keep, tax. I'll, I'll keep making them complex. <laughs> but you did a great, but you did a great job. Well, thanks. Well, let's talk about one more thing with respect to this because it kind of triggered my memory when we were thinking about three different floors. Is you know potentially zoning changes, potentially NIMBYism issues like that. What if you had a situation where you have say a three-story JCPenney and Amazon was to come in and let's say lease up the space and then say, um, put their distribution center on the bottom floor. And then on maybe the second floor, put a four-star store in and on the third floor, put in a grocery store. Um, you're only changing a third of the building itself. You're only changing you know, a much smaller portion of the entire mall to something that's different from um, its existing retail zoning designation. You think that's maybe an opportunity to make something work and be able to, I don't want to use the word get around, but lessen the impact of the change? Um, you know, I, I think so. And I think it's a, it's a good play as far as the community is concerned, if that's what you're really talking about, you know, is this going to be an easier pill to swallow um, instead of converting a, a, a property to entirely a logistics hub, I'm going to effectively have a mixed use hub, right? Um where I have my, you know, my logistics and my four-star and otherwise, I, I think so. I mean, as, you know, speaking as a resident of a community, um, I think I get more out of that type of a setup where I have the grocery store and I have another store, I have an Amazon return center. Um, it really gives, uh, and I think it, it provides those inline tenants with a better value play as well. You're still attracting people into the property. You're attracting foot traffic into the property. Probably solves a number of problems. Uh, I would take that one to Amazon. Oh, cool. All right. Well, Rob, I think we've um, talked enough about this topic. I'm sure people are um, wanting to hear what's coming next. Um, so um, we're still working on ideas for future discussions. So uh, if you are listening and you have some ideas for things that you'd like for us to talk about, um, please let us know. Um, I will also let you know that we are planning on having a regular webcast uh, talking about retail. Um, which is currently scheduled for September 30th. So be on the lookout for that as well, assuming you're listening to this before September 30th. Wherever, whenever you're listening to this, please like, share, and subscribe to hear more content. 
Go to weaver.com to download white papers and view archived live content. We want to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn at Rob Nowak and at Howard Altshuler. Until next time, cheers and stay safe.